This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Super Furry Animals Rings Around the World is the album I'm talking about today on the Excess Long Player. The fifth studio album from Super Furry Animals went to number three in the UK charts and a bit of a triumph in terms of production and mixing techniques as you will hear on today's show as I talk to Guto and Kian from Super Furry Animals about the making and memories behind this classic album. An album that was released in 2001 and nominated for a Mercury Music Prize which gives a little hint as to how highly regarded it is. This is the final episode in this series of the Excess Long Player but if you've not listened to all the episodes so far then there's plenty to go out over the next couple of weeks whilst we get season three ready. Interviews with with Dodgy and Twisted Wheel and the Wombats and Pigeon Detectives. There's loads, so go and look back through the back catalogue, find your favourite albums and delve in to the interviews there to hear some fascinating stories about their creation. But let's get stuck into this chat with Guto and Kian. I've got to say, Kian's audio quality isn't the best on this episode, which I apologise for. I've cleaned it up best I can. I think whilst he was talking to me, he was also looking after his kids, maybe underwater, in a cave somewhere the other side of the world with no phone reception so it's a little bit noisy it's a little bit bubbly but hopefully you'll be able to get the best out of his stories because he says some fascinating things about the creation of rings around the world an album which celebrates its 20th anniversary this year by the way in the week that we've recorded this interview super furry animals have just re-released this album in a load of different beautiful formats including a double gatefold vinyl which has a load of extra studio sessions and retakes and different versions of the tracks on it so that is available now if you're a big Super Fairy Animal fan but let's get stuck into it Guto and Kian from Super Fairy Animals talking about their classic album Rings Around the World How you doing boys? Hello how's it going? Good thanks Let's start. Well, unlike most bands who I speak to doing the long player, this is a classic album that actually you as a band have had to come back to fairly recently. Normally when I speak to people, they've not listened to it for six or seven years or something along those lines. But because, as I said, 20th birthday of this album, it's getting a re-release. What was it like coming back to Rings after 20 years since its release? I'm sure you've been back and explored it since its release but kind of coming back to it with a bit of a fresh view i suppose it's the most obvious thing is the, the passing of time 20 years is quite a long time when you when, when it hits home a lot has changed in that time with um how, how you make records and how records are presented 
and sold and, and how people devour music is quite different. This was the, the tail end, really, of analog world, mm. pre-broadband. <laughs> Does it feel like 20 years? Because as you say, 20 years is a long time. A lot changes, not just in terms of technology and the way music's consumed, but also in a person's life. I'm sure you guys were very different people with very different things that were important to you 20 years ago. It feels like another life, to be honest with you. Someone pointed out I was 25 when we did that record. So... Um, it does feel like another life. And very often I'd ever go back and listen to a record once it's on the shelf. You just want to move on and go to the next thing. You know, not being blasé, but it's like, you're just always looking forward to the next adventure, the next discovery, yeah. next bit of technology you want to embrace, and new ideas and collaboration. You know, it's always, I think as a band, you've always been forward looking. That's what I was going to say, because I think in general, particularly with musicians, they want to focus on the next thing. They want to want to focus on the future. So was there any hesitancy from your point of view as a band to go back and release something that was... 20 years in the past or is there room for that looking to the future and also celebrating the past at the same time you can argue it's a healthy thing to reflect but um again we've never struck a formula either even if you did reflect it wouldn't be in order to repeat if, if we were still active in the studio then this probably wouldn't be happening what's the point because you're you're focusing on the now kind of thing we're going to reflect a bit over the next few minutes on the making of the album and your memories of it being released the first time around. And I think it's fair to say that this album marked a little bit of a change for Super Fairy Animals. It was the fifth album, but at the same time, it was the first album that had been backed by one of the major labels. Did it feel like it was a long time coming to kind of get that backing from a major when you were making this album? Well, creation were always very good to us and they never skimped. Mm. When it came to making records, you know, they were, they were flushed with all the Oasis money and they were very generous. At the same time, they were always an artist-led label. But yeah, it was definitely different going from working with a record company that had a, a small office and, you know, on a Friday afternoon, everybody in the office would be out in the pub, 10, 15 people were working with Epic or Sony you know, you're dealing with people who were in a skyscraper in central London, quite a different environment. These people worked on Shania Twain records and uh, J-Lo records and Beyonce records. And then our record came onto their desk one morning. They'd be working on us. Kind of more of a production line rather yeah. than, you know, Creation had a sound, didn't it? They had similar-ish bands on their label, essentially guitar bands alternative left-leading bands where Epic had all manner of bands. Did that feel like it ramped up the pressure in terms of making the album, suddenly going from, like say, an office of 15 people that I'm sure you all knew by name, I'm sure were kind of vocally very supportive of your music to a, what feels like, the way you describe it, a corporation, I guess? Yes. Um, well, we were lucky with Epic that the guy who signed us, Rob, Rob Stringer, he seemed to be a genuine fan. So we... We didn't feel the, the pressure really there to, you know, we wanted to deliver and, and make a record that they were happy with and that other people would like, obviously. But we had confidence in what we were doing that we would make them happy. And, and we preferred it, really, if, if they just butted out anyway. <laughs> I mean, if you think, like, uh, the last creation record we did was in real world and we were there for nine weeks, doesn't get much more luxurious. So in terms mm. of investment, you could say that was equal amount of pressure, but 
think uh, Sony were probably preoccupied with the Fuji's at the time, so they, they took their eye off us and they let us get on with it. We embraced the opportunity. As with every record, you'd go in with, with an open mind and probably thinking, well, maybe this will be the last one. So you you went for it, knowing we had the financial clout. If we had silly ideas like, oh, let's do a 5-1 surround sound visual album, no one's done that before. Well, there's no harm in asking, because if anyone could, Sony could. It was an opportunity probably to realise some of the more ambitious hair-brain schemes we've had. <laughs> it's interesting you say that potentially you were left to get on with it, that maybe they took the eyes off you a little bit, because I was listening back to this album and I'd forgotten how it started with Alternate Route to Vulcan Street, which is this really slow-building kind of ethereal tune i guess which i imagine is one of those songs that it's really difficult to get a record company to buy into opening an album because the kind of general consensus is hitting with your big songs hitting with your party anthems first hitting with the singles and then you get to play around a little bit in the latter stages of the album was that a difficult one to get past the suits for what want of a better word i think i think at the moment you know you're dealing with streaming i think labels like to have the hits at the top, you know, so people don't just switch off mm. after a song. But I think it was slightly different. There was still the, the idea of an album then, and people were still expected to sit through 45 minutes of music because you've already invested in the in buying the disc anyway. Mm. Unless you taped it off a friend, you, you had to buy the record to hear it. So it's not like nowadays, I think it needs to be, or people want things to be immediate. Mm. I think it's it was quite normal to have a quite a uh, gentle intro into an album. I think of um, Stone Rose's second album. I think that that first song is you know ridiculous the way it you know takes ages to get going. And that's probably not the best example actually. Stone Rose's second album isn't isn't as highly regarded. But I know what so. you mean. It's like there's a desire to take someone on a journey through an album exactly. rather than yeah. And I think that there was a a willingness on the part of the listener to do that at the time. People would expect that in an album format. It wouldn't come up as a, as a surprise. It's probably the best example of surround mixing as well. So maybe, I don't know if that played an influence in the um, track listing. Probably not many people know, but uh, yeah, it's quite impressive. The mix on that, to my mind anyway, still is. So maybe uh, we just wanted to highlight, like showcase the uh, surround system with that mm. song. I'm glad you brought up the mix because I wanted to read you something that when I was trying to dig a little bit deeper into the album, I read something about the mix and the, the capabilities of surround sound that I I did not understand at all. So I'm just going to read what I read to you and hope that you can explain it to me in a bit more, maybe layman's terms that I might understand. So this is from a review of the album. It says, The group were mindful of the capabilities of surround sound and recorded sub-bass on tracks such as a touch sensitive and juxtaposed with you, which could only be heard through the low frequency subwoofer channel in the surround mix. Does that mean that there's stuff on this album that can't be heard by the human ear? No, it's just usually like hi-fi or whatever. They might not reproduce frequencies below, I don't know, 70 hertz or something. Mm. Depending on your system, it can go down to 25 or something. It's like uh, what you're aware of, what you can maybe feel sometimes as well. It's not that you can't hear it, it's just you're more aware, maybe feel it more given a surround system than you would a small hi-fi. You wouldn't hear it on your phone, it'd probably make your speaker break, isn't it? When we were mixing, we um, we watched some movies because we were into the way movies sounded. 
because that's where the 5-1 thing came from. And we listened to some big Hollywood sort of blockbusters to see how they dealt with sub-bass and, you know, something that will make the bottom of your trousers wobble rather than, your, <laughs> than your, you know, something you're hearing through your ears. For example, you couldn't, you couldn't put it on a vinyl because the needle will pop off. That frequency physically wouldn't exist on the vinyl because the cutting engineer would get rid of it because your needle would just pop off. It's a great demonstration of how creative and embracing of technology you were as a band. And this was the first ever album to be released on CD and DVD at exactly the same time, I believe. But I think also in the music itself, it feels very varied and very creative as an album. There's a load of musical styles in there, loads of different genres kind of being pulled in. Where were those musical influences coming from? What were you feeding off to kind of get those ideas? And looking back at some of the reviews as well, there were a couple of people that kind of maybe criticised the album for not having an overarching theme, for maybe having too many different influences. How do you feel about those comments? I don't know. It's probably a comment, to be honest, because it is reflective of our influences. It was probably an amalgamation and a combination of years of influence as well, not just what was happening currently. I remember seeing at the time as well, I think it was for The Guardian or something, that we'd never mix, well, I'd never mix in stereo ever again. <laughs> and then Napster happened, so that, that put an end to that. <laughs> I think it was a healthy thing. Mixtapes was still a thing, I think, where you do compilation on cassettes for your mates and that. So having this journey and ups and downs and peaks and troughs made totally natural process for us. Why, why wouldn't you not do that on an album format? I think we were listening to a very varied palette of music. Although we came from a, a guitar background, we were also heavily into electronic music right from the very beginning. And I think around about this time, we've been listening to a lot of drum and bass and a lot of hip hop as well as old and new guitar and psychedelic music. And the whole Britpop thing was so narrow in its outlook of music. It was, I like one kind of music and that's guitar music. Well, we didn't listen to one kind of music and we didn't think other people did either. Why isn't an Aphex Twin record? Why can't you listen to that and then listen to a Beatles record? You know, mm. I imagine most people who are into Aphex Twin probably like a bit of Beatles as well because they'll appreciate the studio trickery that they did in the 60s as well. It was just a reflection of what we were into ourselves. And what excites us, yeah. Yeah. If you go in the studio and do the same thing that you did last time, then you're going to produce another formulaic mundane reproduction of what you did last time, which one doesn't excite listening and certainly doesn't excite you as a band to go in and do the same. Try and do the things you didn't get to do in the last one, as opposed to, oh, that worked, let's do that again. Mm. Sure. I'm going to ask you both to pick a track off the album in a moment and it might be a favourite track, it might be something that sparks a particular memory about its conception or its recording or it can be related to anything you like but I'm going to ask you to pick one each. While you think about that I wanted to just pull a track off the album and talk about it in more detail if possible because I wanted to take a look at Respectable for the Respectable which is a song that gets a well has a musical credit to Paul McCartney on it. Can you tell me exactly what that's all about? Because I think to the, well, to I was going to say to the untrained ear, to, to most ears, you wouldn't be able to hear Paul McCartney on that particular song. Yeah, I'll talk about the song first. Uh, the song is in four parts. 
is the song that would have started, I think, parts one and two. Maybe Griff had the chords and the melody and, and some lyrics. And it, it's a song that we just, as we were recording it, we just added bits to it. So it became uh, quite a moving, changing song. We were at an awards ceremony, as you are, you know, as you used to do. And um, Kian bumped into Paul McCartney in the toilets and asked Sir Paul if he could do a remix. And you know, he just turned out to be the loveliest, most good-humoured man that you could possibly meet. And um, we ended up remixing some of his music. And then we had his phone number then, which was always a handy thing to have. <laughs> so, um, you know, let's get Paul involved with this record. And... Also being um, huge fans of the Beach Boys, we'd heard the story of Paul chewing carrots and celery for the track Vegetables, which was on uh, Smile. And I guess in, in typical fashion for us, and probably frustrating for the label, you know, we didn't ask him to sing or, or feature heavily on the, on the record, but we, we asked him to, yeah, to chew celery and to chew carrots. <laughs> Uh, rhythmically as a percussion part in I think it's part three he was good enough to not see that we weren't just taking a mickey he saw saw the beauty of the the concept and yeah he said yes what level of direction did you have to give um, him in terms of chewing the carrots and the celery well just saying keep in time Paul keep in time you know <laughs> don't, don't wander there just keep in time keep the rhythm going keep people dancing that's what you want to do mate Come closer to the mic. It's a bit, a bit <laughs> Yeah. Right, so let's go and pick a couple of tracks off this album that you want to highlight, whether they're, like I say, memories, whether it's uh, little musical moments that you'd like to celebrate. Um, Kian, you can go first. What would be your pick from Rings? Oh, uh, shit. I, I'll go to Bearsville. When we went to Bearsville, I think we were there for three weeks and we did maybe six songs. I recorded six songs. Receptacle's one of them. Actually, Receptacle was recorded in two countries or in two continents and mixed in a third country. It just kept growing, that one. Mm. But that was one song we did in Bearsville. But I recall a song called Patience, which didn't make the album. I think it was the B-side. <laughs> but it made it onto the US mini accompanying album or something like that. So technically, it is part of the thing is, when we did... Any album, all the songs was a body of work. So I just look at it as a body of work. Mm. I'll choose that one, an obscure, maybe, for some B-side. Does that count? If you want it to count, it counts. Was there any regret that that didn't make it onto the UK version of the album? It was when I listened to it 10 years later and thought, why didn't this make the album? <laughs> but um, I just think it's, it's one of the best, my favourite mixes of the session. Chris Shaw was the producer. I think he instigated the move to Bearsville because he thought he had the, the best drum sound he'd ever heard. So that, I think that is uh, evident yeah, in Patience as a song. It's sort of very moody, kind of, I don't know, to my mind, he sort of encapsulates the whole mood of the album for some reason. Weird, isn't it? It's a left-field choice. It wasn't the song I was expecting you to pick, I'll be honest with you. Um, <laughs> Guto, what about you? What would you go for? Yeah, I don't even remember how Patience goes. So, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out. The, the song I would choose, possibly my favourite song on it, is Run, Christian, Run, which was a song that I think Kian started with um, a piano line and a melodica line and a beat, possibly. It was like a like a, a 303 bleep. Yes, it would have been a kind of a loop-based... Yeah, acid uh, country. Uh, like a piece of music that 
got developed into a song, I guess, and into that, into Kian's idea then we brought in some pedal steel guitar, which I just think is the most beautiful instrument. And it, it's a song that I, it's one of my favourite songs that we've done. Really, it's got some amazing sub bass if you ever get the chance chance to hear it through the 5-1 mix. Uh, it seems to have all the ideas that we had going on into one coherent song. It stands up as a song and it stands up as a piece of recording and as uh, it stands up as a texture. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm going to pick a tune if that's all right because I just want to confirm whether something's a rumour or whether it, there's any truth in it and it's one of my favourite Super Fairy Animal songs actually it's juxtaposed with you which now like I say you get loads of rumours online and people telling stories and you never know what's true and what's not true but did this song originally start out or was supposed to be a duet with Brian Harvey from E17 or is that completely made up? No, that, that, I think Griff strongly wanted Brian Harvey to be involved, but Brian didn't want to be involved. <laughs> so, <laughs> what? Any particular reason why Brian Harvey? Is, is, was it someone he'd met before, or someone he just liked the voice? Of? Oh, he, he was a um, a figure from tabloid news, essentially, that Griff found quite interesting, and I guess he probably wanted that kind of R and B vocal, and we ended up doing it through the vocoder instead. It would have been interesting. <laughs> yeah, very unique. Before I let you go, obviously, this is the 20th anniversary of Rings Around the World. It's getting its re-release. It's going to be presented on 180 gram gatefold double vinyl, which uh, whether the needle stays on it or not is another matter. The triple CD as well, double digital album, loads going on when it comes out. Also a load of added outtakes and remixes from the original sessions. When you came to re-release this album, was there ever any temptation to go back and I'll use the word fix anything, but I'll put it in heavy inverted commas because I'm not sure anything necessarily needs fixing, but in terms of revisiting stuff and changing it in any way. So it was different to the original, maybe more in line with what you heard at the time of creation. Oh, I think that would have been um, just far too stressful. I mean, where'd you begin? Pointless, even. Yeah, pointless. <laughs> I, I remember I got the master tapes once to sample ourselves for the live show. I listened back to it and there's like, I have no idea how what was on that two-inch tape ended up sounding like what was on record. If that, if that was just the magic that happened at the time. You know? Guto, Kian, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you about the classic album on today's Excess Long Player, Rings Around the World. Good luck with the re-release and thanks Good very time. much for your time on Excess Long Player. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Thank you very much for your time on today's Excess Long Player. Cheers for your ears. That is it for today's podcast. In fact, that's it for this series of the Excess Long Player. I'll be back in October with more of these podcasts, talking about classic albums with the people that made them. As I said at the top of the podcast, if you've not listened to the whole series yet or the whole two series that are out, there are loads of different episodes to go at. Badly Drawn Boy, Kaiser Chiefs, Happy Mondays, Cortinas, Music, Block Party, Slow Readers Club, Embrace, just some of the bands that I've talked to over the last few months about classic albums from their musical pasts. So, go and have a listen. If you like what you hear, please do leave a review. Let others know what you think. And if you've got any suggestions as to your favourite albums you'd love me to cover on the XS Long Player, you can get in touch via a review or you can get me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Jim Bob. And I'll see you soon for another XS Long Player. 
Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester.